Welcome back to the Village Shooter Podcast. I'm your host, Jamal Zaman. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Xness. Enjoy tight spreads, speedy and reliable execution in FX, stock indices, US stocks, commodities, metals, and a great platform. Register for free uh, for register for free on Xness.com to open an account. Um, this podcast is aimed at helping new and experienced traders navigate the markets and learn from other traders. This is episode number 56. In this week's episode, I'm chatting with portfolio manager at Shimmer Capital and also host of the Art of Randomness podcast, Tom Sanghamet. How are you doing, my good sir? I'm well, I'm well. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very good, man. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, no problem. Um, before before we get on to, to with the show, man, like, can you first take me through the, the story behind the Art of Randomness, the name and the podcast? How, how did that come about? <laughs> so, um, how that started is uh, I met Bright Kumalo at uh, at uh, one of these um, sort of trade trade events that normally used to happen before COVID, where you would walk around and listen to people pitch products, investments, it is there. So um, we met and we just started chatting and we, we just became great mates from there. Then one day we are in Rosebank. And uh, we are busy, like having having lunch, and we decided to say, look, I think let's let's try out this partnership. And this was after I got I did my first episode with him at Velocity, um, mm-hmm. and then after that um, we we then decided we're gonna do it. Uh, then we met uh, at at Vestex offices. We put a mic and laptop together. Got a decent producer and we're off to the races um, and tried to get as many people as we could on the podcast to sort of provide uh, some financial insight. I think um, I think we've done well so far. Uh, we, we 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 hit a, a big dip over COVID. Things just got too busy for both of us, mostly me. But uh, I think that's how the 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 podcast started. Yeah, and, and the name Art of Randomness was it uh, almost as random as as the podcast started? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so Bright is a big fan of Nassim Taleb, um, so that's where sort of the name came from. Uh, that uh, markets are random. Um, you know, not everything in life is easily is 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 predictable as we would like to think. Opportunities will come at times of destruction. And destruction will come when you least expect it. Uh, so black swans are more common than we think. Change comes at a speed more rapid than we anticipate. Uh, complex issues come through when you don't understand. So it's all it's all really random. It's all in the spectrum of the bell curve. Yeah, no, got you, man. Got you. That's that's quite an interesting name, and um, and your podcast as well, man. You've you've had some some great interviews there. Um, uh, I think it is this. There was a series that you guys did. Uh, I think it was something about what's your story. I can't remember the exact name, but there was a series of podcasts that you guys did, interviewing people about like their past history and stories. That was, yeah. I I used to find those quite interesting. Oh, the know your people. Ah, uh, so your so people. yeah, know your people. Yeah. 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 Look, I think and, uh, the, the, the financial sector is not as big as people make it out to be. So if you can prove that you are a genuine person and you're there for the greater good of the community, 
people are always willing to let you tell their stories. Um, and yeah, look, I think it's also hard to for someone to tell you their whole story in an hour, um, which is also the randomness part of it. So we just would allow people to speak for as long as possible to get out all their thoughts without being interrupted. Yeah, no, yeah and it's, it's, you know, I also found that, uh, um, you know, in the beginning, I used to be, to be quite scared to approach people for, for interviews and, and that sort of thing. And I found that, you know, people are just, when you, when you approach people, people are just as open, um, uh, are just quite uh, open, much more open than, than you would think. And how how you know with the, the the this random game called life? How did you find yourself you know randomly in inverted commas into the financial markets? Yeah, look, and I often say this to people that I think me being in financial services was an accident. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think it is it is my my favorite love, but it's something that that I I so happened to find out I was relatively good at. Um, mm-hmm. especially when I sort of got into uh, the private equity sort of venture space. So uh, when I started, my goal was to do computer science. Um, that was my goal. My goal was to um, get myself in a position where I could be part of the whole tech scene, hopefully move to the U.S. at some point and drive that. But as I was doing it, I was a relatively decent coder. Um, I wasn't at the top of my class, but I wasn't terrible. Um, I understood it. I understood the math behind it. Uh, I was relatively good. Uh, so when I when I applied for, for computer science, they didn't like my math marks um, at high school level. So I sort of had to say, let me find a way in. So I did uh, IT management, which is basically a combination of of commerce and tech, call it. Um, and I was relatively good at it, but we had to choose a commerce, a commerce subject. And I chose economics uh, for whatever reason. I don't even remember why. I had the choice between business management and economics. And I chose economics. Um, and, and from first year, I was hooked because I understood it. It made sense to me, especially microeconomics, the theory of the firm, and those fancy things, I sort of understood it. It helped me understand business um, or, the, or the way business impacts the economy. Um, and, and because of that love, I really started doing well. Uh, and the third year I had a choice, should I do my honors in information technology or should I do my honors in economics? Uh, I opted to do ECOS. Um, and that's because I got into, uh, I don't know if it still exists now, it was called Brightest Young Minds back then. Um, and you applied and a group of students from all over university would spend sort of a week or so in a, in a, in a, in a lodge or a place and you would get to meet people, talk to people, walk through your ideas. And uh, mm-hmm. that week, um, I met a guy who'd who'd soon be a, a trader, uh, and he's now he's now head of of he's head of of equities at, at Barclays. But yeah, we, and I met him, uh, and we started chatting, 
And as I was talking to him, I realized that I actually had more in common with him than I had with the science students. So uh, the computer science guys, the engineering guys, I understood what they were talking about, but that's not really what I enjoyed. I enjoyed seeing how things worked um, and how the financial sector sort of impacted the economy. And so after that, I really decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a stab at financial services, uh, which I did. And so it was largely an accident, you know, had, had a one chosen business management. I don't know where I'd be today, right? Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. And a little bit uh, of a similar uh, background there, because I'm also a, a software engineer by profession, and I just happened to randomly find myself in, in the financial market space. Mm. Mm. And again, right, it, it sort of brings about the theory that I've had for a long time about financial services. I think, I think most, most people have the acumen to succeed in financial services, most. Uh, I think um, you don't, you, I don't, and, and this is a controversial view I have, um, and most, most of my friends don't like it, but I always think like financial services can be learned. Um, so, so what you study in varsity is only a portion of getting you to think some kind of formulaic and adjusted way. So it adjusts your thinking. So you can learn, you can learn any sort of investment thing by studying finance for non-financial managers, studying CFA, after you've done a degree in music or in liberal arts or in zoology, <laughs> you, 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 can, you can enter into the financial services sector um, with acumen. You don't necessarily need to know the principles because the principles can be taught and can be taught relatively quickly and easily. Right, you, so what you need is aptitude more than anything else. Whereas other sort of, other sort of like areas of, of life or the economy are much harder. Like I, I can't become a microbiologist or a doctor or a civil engineer or a, a philosopher or have a, like have the ability to write and, and study psychology or, or any other sort of non-financial degree. So, so, so yet all those people, if they sat down for a year and were given CFA textbooks, uh, I think the only exception is probably being a chartered accountant. And I think that's the only exception. But every other profession that is not, so call it actuarial science, whatever it is, that's not primarily um, um, sort of commerce, I think can can be chalked down or be done without, especially finance as a subset of economics. I think can be can be mastered by people who haven't studied it as the basis of their life. So a medical doctor can, you know, do a two-year course in finance at WITS and then become a pretty good investment banker or trader. Right? Uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have studied a commerce degree. Um, I think there's just subsets of the commerce department, especially finance as a subset of economic field. I don't think it really needs one to spend four years doing it. I think there's, yeah. there's other things you can explore, like yourself as a software engineer. 
and if you spend two odd years just digging into how the capital asset pricing model works, I think you you you'll still be able to make a career in finance. Whereas I can't randomly wake up tomorrow as a as an investment banker and become a software engineer overnight. I would really need to go back to first principles, build up my skills. It may it may the 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 the, the loop may be shorter because now there are many avenues to learn how to to code, right? But it'll take a lot more for me to become a decent software engineer from being a finance guy than from being a software engineer to becoming a finance person. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I completely agree with you. And then to to evidence to that, I suppose my career as well um, is evident because I've never necessarily done any financial clauses with in, in varsity or otherwise. And uh, you, you mentioned that um, you know you just need acumen to 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 make a career in in the financial markets. And financial markets are probably one of the very few careers that you know you can take any personal interest and in, and monetize it and turn it into into a career. What then becomes a, a problem that makes such a, a low success rate in, in in this industry? Well, there's a couple of things, right? So the first one uh, is institutional knowledge. So, um, so some some people to succeed need to, and not even some, most people in in, in financial services need to go through a good institution. So so you can't. It's, it's hard unless you're doing it yourself as a trader and you're building up your track record over time and you've learned the skills on YouTube, which is possible, right? Um, mm -hmm. But in general, as a career, so not as someone who's creating wealth, but as a career, they often, more often than not, need some institutional knowledge. So you have to have gone through some financial services institution, that's a big bank or a small bank, where that's a big firm or a small firm at some point you've had you'll have to have put in your three four five years at xyz bank or xyz capital or something of the sort um because there's just certain things that you won't learn or it's tougher to learn outside of an institution so uh, i can only speak largely from the investment side uh, specifically private equity um, where you, you have to learn the corporate finance, the modeling, the, the legal, the tax agreements, uh, presentations, pitch books, pitch data. Like, there's, a, there's a whole sort of system around it that you have to acclimatize yourself to. Uh, so that institution then helps you with that. Um, so that's the first step. So access to those opportunities are not always that broad for a lot of people. Um, then the, the second part is, uh, more importantly, is site of transactions. Um, that also is now becomes a tough part. Um, most people don't get to see a lot of deal flow, uh, regardless of which part of the financial sector you're in. So you can be, you can be a trader, but for you to see meaningful deal flow, you have to have the right coverage. You have to have the right access and you have to have a certain science PL, right? 
Uh, so yeah. if you are like a small caps trader, there's limits to the kind of thing you'll see and get exposed to regularly. Um, if you're only trading JSC versus a guy who does JSC and and probably global markets, like there's a whole lot of other things. And then you you, you meet institutional clients who give you the money to be able to run that PL. So the 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 ability to see transactions. Um, so the guys who work at certain institutions will get a higher deal flow rate than guys who work at smaller institutions. And I think this is the advantage of BEE in that it gave the smaller institutions a whole lot of deal flow and structured finance, uh, which wouldn't have happened anywhere else in the world, I think. Um, so we, we suddenly, as a small firm, you could see yourself doing a, a, lot, a lot of deals because uh, you, were, you were a PEE party uh, and you're representing a union investment company or so on and so forth. So now you, you've got scope uh, to see big deals, which we didn't have before. So, so I think the second part is that access to, to deal flow in whichever form uh, of financial services you take. And then the third, I think it's, it's, it's client facing. So access to, to institutions. Uh, so people who will give you money. So being able to go to the PIC or to Sunlam or to Santam or whoever um, manages cash, um, family offices, and so on and so forth, where you go and pitch and you work with and you deal with clients, guys on the other side. So whichever side you're on by yourself, there are guys on the other side having sight of those people and speaking to them and understanding what they do for a living is also a very narrow thing. So, so all in all, I think the difficult part is, is access in general. Uh, so uh, whereas I think other professions, it's difficult to get to the top in any profession, I think, but uh, the access and the insight is not often closed off as much as it is in finance, per se, or it's easier to close it off. I think maybe law is the other profession where you see cases and exposure to cases and so on and so forth. So I think that's what makes it difficult for people to succeed because firstly, you have to, you have to be good, but being good on its own doesn't help you because you have to not only be good, you have to be good for a long time you have to have access to capital to take advantage of opportunities. You have to have the systems in place internally, the operations, to make sure you can execute and execute well uh, within the bounds of the law, under supervision, so on, regulatory framework and, and those things. So it, it, gets, it gets tough to succeed in those sort of environments because a few people have the lion's share of access. And this is across the world. You, you, much smaller firms get to work on much smaller deals, but Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan um, have no problem. If, if, if the CEO of Goldman wanted to speak to Dangote, Dangote will pick up his call, right? Uh, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a different, the dynamics are different. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a, and I think you have to be in Goldman to be able to access that deal or in, in APSA or in JP Morgan or in Standard Bank, whatever it is, to access that size, deal flow size. Um, and most people take that for granted, that being at Merrill Lynch has some value uh, in that you, you get systems and exposure. Um, and even if it's not, if you're in the right sort of PE firm, if it's, if it's not a PE firm, a small firm, if you're in a small firm, but they've got high deal flow because they're specialized, let's say, in, in real estate investment trusts, 
you then you get to see a lot about the JSC and listings and IPOs and how that process works. And you can translate that to other skills elsewhere. Yeah, I got you, got you, man, got you. And uh, what, what is your uh, uh, investment or trading style? And what, what are you looking for in, in, in stocks or in, in private equities when you're buying, especially into, into the private space? What are you looking for in, into an investment? Well, um, the first thing I think is, is the market, right? So look at, I tend to look at, can I, to some degree, estimate the market opportunity? Um, and that takes, unfortunately, a lot of research, a lot of work, because sometimes you can't see it. Uh, for example, I don't know how many people could see the market for electronic vehicles or the market for social media when it all started or the market uh, for, for take a lot or the market for NASPAs and, and, and all those other things that happen around us. Or Yoko, who could have seen uh, or projected that market? That's a, firstly, it's to try and understand the market. Then secondly, it's, 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 the, it's the management. So once you sort of have some idea about how the market works, can the people who are seeing these opportunities, do they have some abilities you believe they can use to execute on it, right? Yeah, most of the time that, that's track record. Um, and sometimes, you know, people don't have track record, but they have some form of work ethic that they have demonstrated previously, which gives you confidence in your ability to execute. Uh, and if you can see that, and I think the third um, largely is the operations. So the, is the business uh, structured well enough to execute on the opportunity? So do they have the right principles in place? Do they have the right practices? Are they dynamic enough? Can they change if things don't go well? Um, can they sort of recover if things don't move the way they, they would like it to go? How are they dealing with market changes? Do they understand it? Is the, is the ship ready to deal with the waves, in essence? And then the last bit is the, is the capitalization. So the, 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 the capital structure, the debt, the equity, how much liquidity they generate, how often and when do they generate that liquidity? So those are sort of like the top end things. And then you drill down, obviously, but those are sort of the things you, you sort of have an idea about when you, when you enter a business. Um, sometimes you can, for example, you can see the market, you see a business in that market, but when you buy it or you buy into it and, and the founder retires, are you certain you're still going to have the contract? Are you certain you're still going to be able to deliver? Will, will the people who are working in that business going to respect whoever you put in as a CEO? Oh, no, no, no. So, so the, the other side of private equity is that there's a certain level of risk that comes with it that is not entirely associated with uh, listed equities because of transparency and liquidity. So you can sell, you can sell shares, you can buy shares relatively quickly in the public market versus the private. So is, is, am I understanding you correctly when I would say, you know, to, to, to make it as an example that you first look at the, 
the waves of the ocean, how 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 heavy they are, and then you back, you look at, at you, the captain itself, and then you look at the ship, um, uh, you know, before them them making that investment. Yeah, look, because you've got to be able to estimate to some degree, like there's no perfection about it. You've got to be able to ex- estimate how big the market opportunity really can be. Um, because the money is made in having a large portion of the market opportunity that exists. So you want to be, you want to invest in the company that has a, that is in a large market and has the ability to dominate that market. But even if that market is not seen and by large, uh, that's relative. So you, you want you you want to be the the guy who is one of the two, you want to invest in one of the top two three guys in a particular industry that is growing and they have the ability to take that market share um, in that in that industry uh, and and become a relatively dominant player over over the course at least of your investment um, horizon. So I think uh, that part is where. A lot of the time, I think we don't take we don't take the time to understand that. So before you even start looking for the companies, right? And to some degree, you can do that with with, with listed stocks, right? You, you sort of identify a market opportunity, and then you see which companies can do the best in that space, and you put your money there. Um. So for example, you look at uh, retail investing. Like Robin Hood sort of showed the scope of retail investing. And so in South Africa, then you start to say, okay, um, it's a part of the market that hasn't been addressed properly. And largely that was because the technology didn't exist at the time. Um, in comes Purple Group, who introduced the technology that enable the average person with 50 rand a month to invest. Now the market becomes huge because it stops being become being about the 50 rand. It's about how many people have access to cell phones who have the 50 rand to invest. So if you look at the overlap between smartphone and and call it employed South Africans or saving South Africans, because if you look at the Stockfeld data, the funeral policy data, and so on and so forth, and if you if you superimpose one over the other you see in, in rands and in people that the market is quite significant. Then you say, can this be modeled elsewhere on the continent or in other growing or emerging markets? And the answer is yes. Um, yeah. Can you grow the same policy in other asset classes? And again, the answer is yes. So the market opportunity is huge. So who is in that market opportunity? Then you look and you find the companies that are addressing that, you look at their management, their leadership, their track record, and you you put up put up your money for that. And I'm just giving an example because uh, everybody loves PPE, right? So it's a <laughs> it's it's an example it's of what I'm saying. Standing. Yeah, exactly. It's just as much <laughs> as we love Yoko, right? Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a business that has addressed a very key need that a guy on the corner had to have cash all the time to sell his hamburgers. Now he doesn't. A lady in the corner 
had to have cash to sell her flowers, her maquinas, her coffee. Now she doesn't. She just needs this blue little machine and a cell phone, and I can bring my card and tap and buy the thing. The market is huge. You've yeah. just opened up. In fact, you've basically unlocked the township economy in reality. So yeah, yeah. Uh, seeing that and then trying to get in and back those guys. Yeah, yeah. So how many how many times have you have you you know especially when you're in the townships uh, got to 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 a place where you're like hey, do you guys take cards and you know and then mm. solving that problem by 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 by, by stretch of a mile. Yeah, exactly right. And 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 these are the sort of companies you want to be in, right? Um, who who can address? We've got a large market. Management is capable. The business is well capitalized. And they have got the right operating environment to be able to make the ship efficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and you you know, uh, uh, I know that you 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 you're a long term investment, you're a long term investor, and you mentioned about um, investment duration. There, um, how do you know when you're wrong and when do you cash in your chips as well? Uh, well, the yeah. nice part, the nice part about uh, investing money is the feedback loop in general is not long. Um, it's much shorter if, so if you're doing options and derivatives, it's very short. If you're doing equities, it's a little bit longer if, if you listed, then if you go in private, it's a little bit longer and then venture, it's a little bit longer, but over time, you're able to. So, so this is the one thing I have said about um, the way the legacy of apartheid has had a long-term effect on South Africa. Uh, by that, what I mean is, during apartheid, because of the sanctions, the way the country ran was very conservative. So every, every rand needed to be saved. You only put money to work within something that looked relatively certain. Everything was just relationship-based on who you knew in the national party and the guys around that. So everything became very conservative. Industries became very oligopolistic. So one, two, three big companies that dominate an entire sector. Now come 94, everyone is, is quote unquote free. What has really happened is that legacy is still with us. And a simple example, uh, we can't we, we can't have a night market in South Africa. Uh, and that's not because a night market and people are not viable. It's because you told people for decades that they must be home at six. So now, uh, to now start telling people all suddenly, okay, guys, we can have a night market that opens at 12. Okay, how do people get there? Because infrastructure wasn't built for people to be around at 10 at night, at 12 at night. So the infrastructure doesn't exist to cater for economic activity, which could be viable for the country. So, so the same thing has happened with money, with capital. Those money managers who've passed down the same mentality to, to current money managers and fund managers, not to, not to take risk, which, which, is, which is contrary to other parts of the world, which are growing which didn't have that legacy, right? Where yeah. you walk into a, a, a Brazil or a Russia or wherever else, call it, 
the guys are willing to say we've got a hundred million dollars here sitting in this pot. We're going to invest in 50 startups. We expect 40 of them to fail. That could just that theory alone that 40 is going to fail in South Africa just won't fly. But you say the other 10 will have will five will be moderate, then the four will be super, then two will be unicorns. We're not there yet. Well, and so so money managers don't don't support because a lot of that risk of of losing money going after a broader reward is just non it doesn't exist in our in our makeup at as yet whereas in other parts of the developing world they don't have that hang up and as a result they even can attract global money so uh, they are able to put themselves in the position where global capital flows come into their, their economy, even if there's certain risks that we don't necessarily appreciate. So I think these are some of the things that we don't talk about uh, in, in the economic structure. Uh, so so we, we then have a problem in that the access to capital becomes then a very relational issues. So credit committees are structured to say no. If, so, so the guys who are in credit, they are trained that if they say no to a deal, they've done their job. Right? And, and this is part of the, the wheel of things. Right? Um, whereas other parts of the world, I think, who've, who've, who've had similar experiences um, sort of have built their culture out of themselves to say we want to drive a certain level of growth and it will come at a cost, right? So I think those are the sort of things that we sort of need to look at why, why it's hard then to, to continue to build big businesses and build new businesses um, because not many people have access to the resources required. And that's because most people are uncomfortable with seeing a company fail. Yeah. It's, is, is it perhaps, uh, um, you know, people, uh, um, you know, portfolio, manager, portfolio managers not being different from, you know, uh, uh, regular people who are not participant on, on, on the financial markets, being obsessed about being right a lot rather than being right by a lot? Yeah, that's possible, um, but again, it's 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 a it's it's an ingrained mentality. So you cultures are difficult things to change, and so if we look if we look at at South Africa, one of the reasons that we have this sort of high unemployment rate is largely because the average person doesn't have access to the economy. So there is people who want to work, but they don't have access to work. And the structural reason for that is that the economy, the economy has been and continues to exist for the minority, right? So, so very few people have access to um, social mobility, call it. So the same thing sort of applies in, in, in fund management. Very few people have access to managing money. And because of that, 
there's mandates, there's performance, and there's a whole lot of other issues that drive you having access to that money. So it's not ideas, it's not innovation, it's not growth. Guys look at you and say, hey, um, if we are X, Y, Z, and we give you 200 million that to manage, um, we want to know above all other things that one, you're not going to lose us money, two, you're going to outgrow the JSC. Uh, so you already are pushing people into particular corners. Whereas if you look at alternative asset managers um, in other parts of the world, they have asset allocation strategies that cater to that. So those say, okay, there's currencies, so on and so on, and they've got asset allocation strategies that allow them to take, to take certain risks. So if you think about a broad portfolio, right? Uh, and then you, it's a pie chart. Then you say, okay, global equities is a slice. But in that slice, you've got G7, you've got G20, you've got emerging markets, you've got frontier markets. Then you say, okay, fine. Uh, in that emerging market slice, uh, already we've removed China, we've removed Russia, it's on in the G7 slice. Okay, so who's here? You say uh, maybe Brazil, uh, India, South Africa, whoever, ever, ever is in that other emerging slice. Then you say, okay, in this emerging slice, how much are we going to give to South Africa? Oh, we're going to give South Africa X amount. And that X amount then flows into SA. Right? Uh, we seem to not be that brave domestically. We will have a pool of money and be like, no, we'll give you ETFs, we'll give you, we'll give you equities, we'll give you debt, we'll give you global equity. But no one is saying domestic venture or domestic private equity. There's no sort of, if you look at a lot of asset managers, there's very little of them who participate at that level. So the asset allocation doesn't even exist enough to make an impact uh, across the board, right? Because if the GPF loses a billion rand, it's going to be a top pick in parliament. You know, uh, so there's these limitations, right? Um, and I think we, we have to look at that in all honesty, because I think that's where, that's where we're being broken, I think, in terms of growth. Uh, if we look at Kenya, Kenya has 44 banks, 44, right? Yeah. Uh, that's my point, right? That they have enabled the competition. We, we, I'm not sure how many we have, but there's a few very big guys who take up most of the market. And so that ability to innovate and compete, which Capitec has done, needs to happen at scale across other parts of the economy. So people can't sit and just be comfortable because they know that the real competition is not there. So the big banks can sit together. So the CEO of Investec, Standard, Netbank, ABSA, you know, Capitec, Mercantile, who's been bought by Capitec, all of them, they can come and sit down, they sit. They can basically have a dinner every month and say, okay, guys, what do we think, right? Uh, I don't know if that sort of thing is possible anywhere else in the world where there's not a lot of disruption. So yeah, I think we, we, 
We've got a lot of structural issues which filter into our, into our asset management psychology. And that psychology is only pro-growth at a particular stage or with a particular set of people. So if you know enough people to support you, you can get allocation, you can get supported. Um, if your strategy is loved or liked by certain people and you come out of certain institutions, it can get supported, right? Uh, uh, but because there's really no competition, it becomes really a, a sort of a circle or a club. Whereas if you go to other parts of the world, um, no one wants to miss out on the next Facebook. So uh, there'll be a look, look at Andreessen Horowitz is a venture, is a venture capital company. I think they are managing almost $4 billion. That's the same amount of money being managed by Mazi Capital, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So, so, so you look, you, you look at it and yes, the, the, the sizes are different. The economies are much bigger, ETC. My point is they've got that amount of capital solely directed at startups and growing private firms. Um, and we are hoping the government does that uh, <laughs> instead of incentivizing private sector and asset managers to do it. But, if yeah. but you, you, you have, you have, you know, uh, but by large parts that you've also mentioned, um, you know, one would say an, an orthodox, uh, um, you know, way of looking things. You have quite an interesting way of looking things. Do you have a book or an uh, or investment or trade that you took that shaped how you 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 look at investment and how you you invest there? And what was the lesson that you learned there? Um, I don't know if it's a it's it's a singular book per se. I think I just generally read, and I try to read. It's more it's more a case of 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 a combination of ideas. So, so I, I, I think I, I spend a lot of time trying to understand what's happening around me, especially, especially sort of socially. Because at the end of the day, businesses are about people spending money. Right? So I try my best to understand what, what makes people spend money, what makes people want to spend money. And where do they want to spend money? What, what are the future prospects of a people group, a country, a region? And who, who, who looks like they, are, they can address those issues? So I think, um, I think my, my, a lot of my ideas are around a group of books. I, I, I try and read a book a week, which doesn't always work. Um, <laughs> and I try and read that book that's outside my um, my field. Um, I try and not read things that always have to do with with finance. I need to read other things that have to do with psychology, science, uh, families, sort of to get myself to see the world differently and to try and find those pockets that could lead to quality companies and see if we can address those things. Um, so yeah, that's, 
that's largely how I've built my philosophy. I think I've, and I think also just experience, like skin in the game, uh, putting up money and losing it, borrowing money to do deals and it doesn't work and you have to pay back and you get letters of demand and, you know, your credit rating tanks and you have to repair it. So going through all that, I think, gets you to see how things sort of work in a way that helps your investment thesis. Um, and I also think the best thesis is understanding yourself. Um, spend a lot of time understanding the type of person you are. If you know you're of a, if you know you're of a nervous disposition, uh, maybe trading is not for you, right? Uh, th there's certain things which may not be for you. Um, yeah. So yeah. And I suppose the best strategy is the one that's uh, in line with your personality. Yes. Yes, I think that's firstly, I think. And secondly, I also think that you, you, you also have to have the discipline of learning. Right? You need the discipline of learning yeah. how to invest. There's just certain principles that exist uh, that you need to learn um, and then move from there. Um. Do you have any uh, uh, um, painful uh, trades or investment that you can remember? And what are the lessons that you picked up from, from, from those episodes? Uh, many, <laughs> many, many. Um, some of them were still paying for them now. Um, where we, we did a private equity investment in a, in a coal business. Um, and because of quality issues, we lost the contract, but we still owed the bank quite a bit. So uh, we we <laughs> we are fully we are fully aware of what it takes to to lose money. I think um, I, I always think it's important to understand that there's never going to be a riskless investment. There's no such thing as a sure thing when you're putting your money on the line. Um, yeah. And I think we, we must always be aware of that. So investment comes with risk. You know, as, 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 as you're sharing that story, it reminds me a lot of, of um, this fallacy around property that, you know, property never loses. And when, when you know, in, when an investment doesn't work on borrowed money, the bank still, or whoever lends you that money, they still want that money. And they don't care if the investment worked out or not. Yeah, look, um, as I'm saying, it's been a tough, it's a tough two years, even for us as as, as an, a, a private equity investor. Um, remember, for us, we we are a very small firm, and we don't manage people's money. Right? So a lot of the money we're managing is founders' money. Um, uh, which we've earned from other investment opportunities and from our corporate finance activities, right? So we go out there, we you do a project, you make 100,000, 200,000, whatever it is, you know, you put it in the bank, you separate the money for ops and the difference you try and build a portfolio. It's long, it's hard. And we're trying to prove a track record. So when we lose money, um, we're actually cutting our lives short, short, uh, in essence. So it's very difficult. 
Um, it's very difficult when you sit out there, you borrow money and start getting letters of demand and summons and things like that, which, which are the ugly side of business that not everyone wants to speak about. And having to overcome those kind of things is very difficult because when, when, when individuals or financial institutions want their money, they're not, they're not necessarily playing ball. Um, yeah, it gets tough. Get tough. That's, and it's been a tough ride, especially for us, um, over the course of COVID, where investment opportunities are not so simple. People don't want corporate advice. Individuals don't want to risk their money. So it's it's been a tough season for us, I would say. Uh, and I think the lessons learned there is that sometimes breaking even is okay. At a lot of the time, we want to shoot the lights out with every investment. That's the first lesson. Breaking even is okay. The second is always separate your portfolio. Uh, I've got a written article once. Portfolio separation theorem, something like that. It was one of these academic journals. Um, and it's important that isolate each part of your financial life to that. So if you're doing, for example, corporate finance on one end and you're doing well there, Isolate that and keep that money there for that. Right. Uh, don't now take that corporate finance money and try and um, build out a venture capital portfolio. Uh, it, because your VC portfolio might still exist, but you might not be able to pay your bills because yeah. that's an illiquid asset. Right. Uh, and it will only start showing solid track record in sort of 10, 15 years. So yeah, yeah, a decade away from liquidity, if the if the if the share goes, if the company goes well. So these are the lessons that uh, we sort of are learning now, and we're trying to dig ourselves out of these holes, um, and we're trying to build something sustainable, um, reliable, and that will be here in twenty years' time. If you listen to one of the interviews we did with Delphine Governor, one of the things she said on one of the pods is that investment is a 20-year journey. So you've got to be able to prove yourself over the course of 20 years. And uh, we at Shallow Capital uh, started in 2015. So we're barely 25% of our way there and we're still seeing smoke. <laughs> so um, I think it's, it's important to understand that even when you do it on your private capacity, that the rounds you're investing today, you really won't, you really may not see the kind of gains you want to see immediately, but you could see them in 10 years. And a typical story, I invested in Capitech when it was trading at 33. Right? Uh, then it went up to about 70 something, 77 or 78. And I was like, okay, I've made my money. <laughs> no, at that time I wanted to get married and so on and so forth. So I withdrew, I sold my capital exchanges, paid for my 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 wedding and all those fancy things. Now look where the share is. Yeah. Right. And and that's ten years later because I've been married ten years, right? So ten years later, what what I what I bought at thirty three is now at a thousand something. Yeah, almost. And these are it's chasing two thousand now. Exactly, right. So, so these are the type of things I'm talking about, right? 
Uh, and I'm not out here to say I'm blaming my family or my wife or whatever, <laughs> and that people shouldn't get married. No, the point I'm making is that when you spot a good company and you spot good management, don't expect the returns to come tomorrow. Expect them to come seven, eight, nine, ten years from now. And those returns are going to be, if, if you do the job right, are going to be meaningful. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, is it like, uh, um, you, you know, you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the story of, of, of uh, um, that cold, that cold, cold deal, rather, um, that you did. Yeah. So there's this, there's this uh, um, psychological hurdle that, that we are faced with in the markets and that you can do something right you can do everything right and still be wrong and lose money. Um, is that mm. the, the the biggest hurdle that separates, uh, um, you know, the top one percent from the rest of the ninety nine percent? That the top one percent can um, not only withstand that period from a psychological standpoint, but can execute, um, you know, on on other opportunities uh, even after you know, because being wrong and losing money is one thing, but being wrong and losing money after doing the right thing is, 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 is another. So, so here's, here's the thing. So if you think about, uh, what's this guy's name? Jim Chainos. I think he's the guy runs the medallion fund in the US. Mm -hmm. um, and they've returned crazy numbers over the course of his life. Um, his fund, I think, has been right 26% of the time, right? And they've made people billionaires. <laughs> so again, right, it's not about the, 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 the loss side. So it's not about the 74% that they lost. It's that the 26 was so big, it made the 74% irrelevant. Right? So, so that's the part that we, we need to understand that in our portfolio, uh, the, the way you put your money, you must have the ability to say, if business A completely knocks the lights out, um, how, how, will, how, will, how will I respond? How will it do? Can it return the fund? Right? Yeah. And, and once, once you start thinking like that, you start looking at businesses differently. Like, for example, we got into PPE at... 51, we got into a 51, uh, it's now almost two rand. So, so these are the sort of things I'm talking about. S same thing with Renegen. We looked at the market for helium, we looked at the global demand, we looked at the, what it could do. And Renegen, I think today, let me check quickly. Last time I, I checked, we were up 28% in our religion for transition. Um, yeah, we're up 32 in religion. Right. So, so, so what I'm saying is seeing these opportunities that is important. I mean, uh, Aveng is another one. We got in when it was hard to get in. We had to spend a lot of time sitting there and buying slowly but but it's giving it's giving us good returns um and you don't even have to talk about big you can talk about um, small companies you talk about big companies as well so yeah. so i think 
I think it's important to understand that. I think it's important to understand that when you look at a business, there are some businesses which are just stable. They are bond. They will give you 5% a year, 5% dividends, yield, whatever the case may be. Then there are some, some companies which can perform but will not shoot. Then there are some companies that are actually taking a bet on the market, the management, the operations to execute. Uh, and when they do, you're happy about the outcome. Yeah, right? And when they don't, you must accept that L. You must accept that there was an error in your judgment or there was something you didn't see or didn't anticipate uh, and accept that that risk exists next time you do what you're doing. No, no, got you, got you. And I suppose the 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 the, the most important bit is that um, you know when when you only write only twenty five percent of the time, and that twenty five percent that twenty five percent is the one that shoots the lights out. The important bit is to withstand the 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 losses of the other seventy four that they don't um, you mm. know take you out to the cleaners. What's can you take me through your risk and, and money manages uh, money management strategy of what you know when when uh, um allocating capital and how do you decide the the weighting so that you don't have um that black swan uh, investment that takes you that takes you to the cleaners ah, look i think the first thing is we don't use leverage um so i think leverage has the capacity to be taken to the cleaners but we we don't use it other people do and it helps them but we don't that's the first thing. The second, I think, uh, investing our own money. I think that has really, really, really changed how we see things. Um, when, when, when you're investing a large part of other people's money, I think your, your, your views on how risk is taken are different um, uh, because I think you, you, your skin in the game is not as great. Um, so we've got a very large skin in the game. Uh, whatever money we manage on the behalf of partners, we are at least 35% of it. Yeah. Um, and by manage, I mean, we will have investment clubs. So we'll have investment clubs and we'll be in charge of the administration of those investment clubs. Um, and that uh, we are often at least a third. So we know that our money is in with other people. Um, and then I think that the, the, the third bit is spending our time researching and, and analyzing what needs to be done. Um, Does having that much skin in the game help you um, not separate yourself from being a portfolio manager and being an investor with, with, with the clients because a huge chunk with your money is you know the same place where you're... you're uh, your clients, so to speak, or is that? Yeah, I think it helps us think clearly. Uh, it helps us think clearly because we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not looking at things from. We are a portfolio manager and we charge fees. We're looking at things as we are co-shareholders. We've been tasked by shareholders to manage this portfolio on their behalf. Um, and when we make a decision, the shareholders know 33, 34, 34 cents on every rand invested is us. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so they understand that when we take this risk, we're not taking it 
on the side. Yeah. Right. We're not like we 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 are in it. And I think it's something we we'll hold on to for as long as we can. Um, and we'll continue to build up to ensure that even the day we manage a billion dollars, we want 333 million of that to be us. Um, so, so that we are always, we're always aware of the risks being taken by our clients. Yeah, yeah. And I think it solves the discipline problem as well because you're not, you're not going to take adverse risk because you know that your capital is in it as well. Mm. That's the goal. Skin in the game in alignment with our investors and that we benefit when they benefit and we benefit the most when they make the most. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. I like that. And, you know, I think... The know, other side is we get to dictate the rules, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we, 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 then, we then get to say how the, how, how the capital structure works. Um, and that's also helpful. Right? Oh, because they can see you've got you've got a large chunk. As a result, you've got a large say. Ah, got you. Now, I like that, I like that a lot. And uh, you know, as as portfolio management is one of the things, uh, or fund management as one of the careers that uh, you know I, I want to morph into. Um, you, oh, that's the type of manager that I want to be. Um, I want to be invested along with, um, you know, my investees or along with clients as well. Yeah, look, I think, I think you need to you need to embrace that um, we live in in a part of the world where most people are being scammed for their money. So there's always some scam going on, triple M, forex, whatever. Mm-hmm. So 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 you need to maintain and display a certain level of trust. Yeah. Um, and to do that in our in our in our part of the world. Um, and in our space, um, you have to have skin in the game. Even when you get a mortgage, they'll tell you we want ten percent. Um, sometimes they don't necessarily need that ten percent. Uh, they want it because they know you've also put something down, and you are also at risk. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it's important. Um, it's important. And I think uh, other asset managers and fund managers are different. We are still building ourselves to that. We're still working towards our FSP license or all these things. Right? So um, we hope one day to be big enough to, to be managing two, three billion dollars and investing in African private equity and venture capital. And have an arm of our business that uh, also manages a couple of billion and focuses on growth equities or on equities and uh, we, we will be a minority part of that sort of business, uh, which will partner with someone, hopefully. But that's, that's how we would like to approach it. We would like to compete with the Helioses of this world um, and see if we can really bring about capital to, to the continent. And if a third of a fund is us, I think uh, we'll be respectable. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that sounds great, and uh, all the best with that, man. Wish you, wish you all the best. What, what, what are some Thank of you. the what are some of the things that you think um, you know both uh, institutional and and retail investors get wrong, and what are some of the common mistakes that you see on platforms like Twitter uh, um, that you think when you're reading a tweet 
uh, he said, you, prob- you probably shouldn't be doing that. And what are some of the things that, you know, retail investment uh, investors are doing right? And you, you, when, you, when you're reading the tweets, you're like, you know what? Good job, Dave. Um, it's one thing that's wrong and right. It's due diligence. So some people are doing their due diligence, right? And some people are doing it wrong. And we can use um, the recent uh, young woman's... Uh, uh, bank, um, it it had when it, when they came in there, there was a lot of hype, um, and then one guy did it his DD and showed and did a series of tweets on why he suspected it was a wrong or incorrect uh, model, mm-hmm. and that that showed the the two sides. So, so I'm not saying that was wrong, right? What I'm saying is that shows the two sides of the argument. There are other people on Twitter who were like. It doesn't matter who back this uh, this lady, this team, and so on and so forth. Then there were another group of people who were like, "Nope, we're not touching this with the barge pole." That, and I think it's it's the, that that approach is important. It's important to have something that, or someone who's out there who's going to analyze the situation for you, but primarily you have to analyze it for yourself, break it down, and demonstrate why. This is a great value proposition for you, uh, specifically. And I think that due diligence is where things go wrong. Um, and I think if we get that right as a people, uh, we'll be great. Because there's when it when it gets done right, and then when it gets done wrong. Yeah. Um, and then I think that that's where I would I would, I would hinge. Um, and I think well, and again, right? Twitter Twitter is a small space. Uh, it's got 200 or 300 million users, let's call it. And there's 7 billion people on there, right? So as a percentage of society, uh, Twitter is a very small minority. I think Facebook is more representative with 2 billion people. So with 2 billion people who use the platform, we can safely say there's some representation. The sample size is large. Uh, Twitter's representation is very small. Uh, and so the views shared on a platform that's small may not always be accurate or representative of the truth. So you've always got to take what's happening on the Twitter sphere with, with a lot of reservation because it, it, it represents a very small group of people uh, who, who may or may not have the best views. And so if there's something trending, great, you found out something's trending. <laughs> Now you can you you must do the work now. Do the work, understand it, understand the asset, understand the product, understand why it's important, how you are going to make money, how you are going to invest. Uh, and once you've got all that, then you can make a decision. Right. So so yeah, it's it's it, like in general media in general. I think it's something I found like you need to try your best to be able to separate yourself from what is viewed as normal and common to what you view as important to you. Mm. Um, and, and then make decisions off the filter of what is important to you, not necessarily what is touted out there as news or as, as something meaningful. Um, mm. And I think if we approach investment like that, we will make less errors. 
player. You know, I, I agree fully 100% with you. Um, because I, I think for me, the most important question when it comes to any investment in, in my portfolio is why? Why is it there? Like, why why does it exist in, in, in my portfolio? And if you if you know the answer to that, you you would know when when not like when it's the time no longer to 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 hold that position. Because but if you didn't do your due diligence as as you pointed out, the the, the answer to the question why is going is going to be quite vague. And uh, when it's time to to get the heck out of dodge, you wouldn't know that uh, the time has come. Yeah, and sometimes it's not to get the heck out of dodge. You you can make a poor investment and it goes well, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's it. Can happen. <laughs> so, 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 so it, it happens. Uh, that's uh, which is part of uh, Ponzi scheme, right? Yeah. Many people, many people jump on a train that's going up, then some people jump it, jump off it before it starts going down, and they look like geniuses, but it doesn't necessarily mean they made a good play. And this is why uh, investment is a long-term business. Yeah. You've gotta, you've gotta be able to. Do what you're doing over a sustained period of time. Yeah, true, true. And I think it's it's, it's something that most market uh, 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 most uh, market participants, especially especially uh, uh, new 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 people into into the market, don't understand is that you know earlier earlier we spoke about being um, being being um, uh, being right and still losing money, uh, uh, you can also be doing all the wrong things and 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 make a lot of money, and mm. you could get uh, addicted to to, um, you know, <laughs> to 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 those results of of you know I suppose random rewards, and that could be quite quite dangerous for you. Mm, uh, which is why it's a long term game. That it's yeah. a sustainable long term game, and I think if we all enter into that mindset. We must treat our investment portfolios the way we treat our careers. It's a long-term game. We need to build rights, build the right foundations, build the right portfolio, make hard decisions when you have to. Um, there are some decisions you have to, to make hard decisions. You have to cut out some assets. You have to add another set of assets. You've got to make those hard decisions. And I think over time, if you do it right, you'll be fine. Yeah. Man, uh, as we 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 approaching the end, what are some of your favorite and least favorite things about the par- current investment landscape, both in South Africa and globally? Uh, I think favorite is we now have access to 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 global equities sitting in South Africa. I think that is a major part where you can participate in other areas, other regions of the world that may be providing you a greater greater growth access. So I think that's that's a massive upside. I think uh, the downside is that there's not enough South Africans who are living above the poverty line to ensure this can happen at scale. So I think uh, the market has a lot of money, but very few of us are consumers. Um, and then, and that that's a problem. I think it's a problem that needs to be addressed severely. There needs to be some strong action. Um, and I think, uh, if not corrected, we, we will end up with some some form of black swan event in South Africa. Um, something that will be unexpected in some corner somewhere. That's going to result in long-lasting or, or high high impact high impact change somewhere else. 
And I think we don't want those sort of scenarios. We want to we want to structure things such that the average person can earn and spend, which will make it better, our consumer base broader, uh, and, and enable us to save more. Our pensions will go up, our portfolios will be strong, uh, will reduce our debt levels. It will make things better. So that's my concern. No, got you, got you. Man, uh, it's, 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 it's been great fun chatting to you. I really, really enjoyed um, chatting to you and then learned quite a bit. Um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, man. Uh, but no, I did. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you very much, man. I hope I hope to, to, to catch you on the show again. Ah, not a problem. Um, yeah, for whatever reason, people think my views are worth listening to. So. <laughs> Yeah, they they quite worth listening to. They quite they quite worth listening to. Uh, be- before I let you go, man, um, can you give me some of your favorite books um, that you've uh, you, you learned? I know you you know you read a lot, so, but uh, you know, top five of, of top of your head. Um, Deep work. I recently read that. That was a great book. Um, and then the hard things about hard things, uh, which is also a very good book. Uh, that struck out to me. Then the 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson, that was also found that he has a lot of English, but uh, the, the, the book itself was actually quite uh, meaningful. Um, he's got a new one out that I need to read, um, but I think uh, it's, 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 it's a worthwhile read in general. Um, let me see off the top of my head. Um, yo. Um, mm. Oh yes, uh, on the brink. Uh, Hank, Hank Paulson's book. Uh, that was a very good book. Uh, it spoke. It spoke largely to to what was happening during the financial crisis, and it helped me a lot uh, to understand quite a bit of what's going on uh, around. And then. I guess the last one will be This Time is Different by Reinhardt and Rogoff. Um, they're two, I think, Harvard professors who sort of proved that over the course of time, we think things are different and we've done things better, but crises are an inevitable part of financial market. So that was also a good It's a thick book, but it was a good read. Uh, off the top of my head. <laughs> then there's the books on the side, originals, um, books like that that are sort of on the side. No, all right. Um, th- those those sounds like uh, interesting titles. Um, I'm gonna add uh, quite a few of them, especially the the Jordan Peterson, onto onto my own. Mm. Mm. It's a good book. No, gents, thank you very much for taking the time, man. I really appreciate um, the conversation and uh, really enjoyed it. Man. Nah, no problem, no problem. Uh, hopefully, we can do this again soon. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I hope so too. I hope so too. Um, that's it for the show this week. Be sure not to miss another episode of the Village Twitter podcast by subscribing on your favorite podcatcher. We everywhere where good podcasts are aggregated. Do follow me on Twitter at Village Twitter Z A, and you can follow uh, Tamsang at I M T P J I am T P J on Twitter. 
Don't forget to check out our, our podcast sponsor, excellence.com. A big thank you to my guest and thank you for listening and check you next time on the Village Trader. Cheers.